Hello everyone, this is Evan Underwood with the Confrontational Politics Podcast, a Youth Federalist Initiative program. If you want more information about the Youth Federalist Initiative, uh, then go to our website at www.yfi1776.com. So, um, today I'm back with a second episode where I'm reading through the book Confrontational Politics by H.L. Richardson, the book that this poll that this podcast is named after. And, um, yeah, we're diving into the second chapter of it. So to summarize what this podcast is about and a bit of what I read and explained and discussed in the first chapter, uh, the Confrontational Politics podcast seeks to distance itself and move away from peer policy discussion because if you're a conservative, you know generally what you believe, you know all the talking points, you know a lot of the policy and what differentiates yourself from a liberal or a libertarian or whatnot. But I've really identified a need in the conservative movement at large to where we have to transcend just talking about policy and we have to look a lot more into the underlying mechanisms of, you know, how we are to gain cultural influence and how we are to talk to liberals and how we are to debate and win in the minds of Americans and in the minds of Western society. And really, many conservatives don't talk about that too much, um, or at least they don't talk about it beyond cursory um, discussion about, well, this is how you debate a liberal, this is how you, this is how you own the libs and whatnot. And really all of the focus, as conservatives, we talk about is centered around, well, how do we present to liberals that we have better policies? But as Richardson explained in the book, it's not just about talking about how we have better policies and about how we have better ideas. It's about how we, how we diffuse the liberal psyche that's so persuasive to the minds of Americans. And that's what he started in on, and that's what he alluded to in the first chapter, um, where um, he talked about a variety of things, mainly the compromise culture, where as conservatives, uh, we have a very high propensity to seek compromise as opposed to conflict. And because of that, that precludes us uh, from winning conversations and winning in persuasive debates. That's because you know, compromise means that we don't necessarily stick to our ideas in the purest sense. While we may be confident in our ideas and policies, compromise, compromise means that we still want to erode at them and give strategic parts of it away. However, when our opposition doesn't do that, and when they're intent on rushing through the purest form of their ideology as manifest in policy, we cannot respond by compromising and simply saying that uh, their ideas deserve a place in what we believe to be our superior policies. And ultimately, um, Richardson talks about that, you know, in our Christian upbringing and in our overall moral upbringing as conservatives, we ultimately fall victims to our own decency, right? So we want compromise, we want consolation, we want cooperation, 
we do not want conflict. However, if we are to get our ideas implemented and if we are to gain ground culturally in the Western world and specifically the United States, then we have to adopt a mentality that seeks out conflict and ultimately we have to adopt, adopt a mentality that seeks to win. And to do that, we have to acknowledge that it, that it is fundamentally a zero-sum game. And that in playing a zero-sum game, you either win and gain ground, or you compromise and you lose ground. So, going on to chapter two then. Uh, chapter two shifts into a bit more specific uh, details about that. And it specifically talks about... Um, I guess the underlying mechanisms for how liberals uh, talk, how they debate, and specifically how they find it so easy to corner conservatives, and how, as a result, that means conservatives are less persuasive and gain less ground culturally in the United States. And um, Richardson also goes on to talk about how it's our burden to acknowledge this and how it's our burden to address this and see how we can implement these strategies to use against the people who are using them against us. So, uh, with that being said, let's uh, take a quick read of what he has to say about this and then we'll discuss later. So, chapter two. Humanism's man-centered roots necessarily yield the bitter fruit of political domination and oppression. Webster's Dictionary of the 1970s defines humanism as follows, quote, a modern, non-theistic, rationalist movement that holds that man is capable of self-fulfillment and ethical conduct without recourse or to supernaturalism. This intellectual and cultural secular movement stemmed from the study of classical literature and, cultural, and culture during the Middle Ages and was one of the factors giving rise to the Renaissance. Sounds pretty fancy, doesn't it? intellectual, classical, cultural, giving rise to the Renaissance. From reading this definition, one could conclude that humanism's been around for a long time, a respected, age-old philosophical movement of intellectuals. Not so. Humanism is another contemporary pagan version of ageless atheism, another attempt by man to build a new Tower of Babel. Webster's original dictionary of 19, 1828 doesn't even have a definition for the word humanism. If humanism had been around to give rise to the Renaissance, one would think Webster's Dictionary of 1828 would have mentioned it. It didn't. Webster's did mention atheism, though. Historically, man has chosen to reject God, thereby usurping for himself the exalted position. It's pretty hot stuff to think you can play God, but it's insanity to think you can play and get away with it. History is, history is replete with man making a fool of himself, and modern man is no exception. There has always been a proliferation of cults offering multiple gods of lesser human de deities to worship, each filling a man-made niche that each one offering intellectual justification for human excess and lustful desires. The most contemporary cult chosen to reject Almighty God is humanism, and its political offspring, modern liberalism. It's been found scientific, quote-unquote, evidence in the theories of Darwin to reject God. The various evolutionary, quote-unquote, ideas have been joyfully welcomed and sanctified by the latest batch of atheists, even though Charles Darwin, later in his life, had caused to doubt his own speculation. Darwin's articulation, 
articulated ambivalence has not only dampened the evangelical fervor and faith of his followers, nor have they had recent discoveries of contemporary science destroyed the Darwinian thesis. Evolutionists still choose to believe for all obvious reasons. And then later on, he goes on to say, Why bother to worry about a conscience if there is no God to hold us accountable? It can be argued that a conscience apart from God is impossible. What would constitute the foundation of one's conscience without God's laws? Are we capable of constructing a conscience on our own? Upon reflecting, knowing the fallibility of man, that is highly improbable, if not impossible. Conservatives wonder why liberals aren't bothered by their consciousness when they twist the truth, covet the wealth of others, and get caught in bald-faced lies. The reason is simple. One can't be bothered by what isn't there. Webster's Dictionary defines conscious as, quote, knowledge or sense of right or wrong with a compulsion to do right. Right or wrong by whose standards? God's or someone else? A wealth of intellectuals have written volumes expanding upon the theme that God the Creator doesn't exist. They expound further that not only does he not exist, but belief in him has been harmful to mankind. They lay the ills of the world at his feet. Lenin contemptuously wrote of religion, quote, Religion teaches those who toil in poverty to be resigned and patient in this world, and consoles them with the hope of reward in heaven. Religion is the opium of the people. Nice guy Lenin, a first-class humanist, the blood trail of suffering he left will be remembered for centuries. So, the difference between all of the aforementioned humanists are gossamer thin. If there is any distinction between them, it's the degree of force each one is willing to use in order to impose ideas on the, quote, unwashed masses. Communist Nazis pragmatically exterminate their opposition. Contemporary humanists want to brainwash them into submission. In either case, all wish for total political, for total political power without dissenting opinions. So what, then, are the logical consequences of humanistic thought, and what behavior emanates from these assumptions? Is truth absolute? Are there ultimate right and wrongs? The answer for them is obviously no. There are no absolute right or wrongs, hence all ethical values are malleable, changeable, and somewhat irrelevant. Ethics are situational. The situation dictates which ethics apply. To a liberal, the word hypocrisy doesn't exist. Caught in a falsehood or evident failure of a policy, the moral thing for the liberal to do is extricate himself for the least amount of political damage. Any response is possible. Deny, admit guilt, ask forgiveness, attack the character of the accuser, whatever works. If the opposition is incapable of exploiting the lie, ignore them, because if no political harm occurs, then who cares? Who then can change what constitutes public morals? Anyone with enough power to force others to obey? A chilling example of the consequences of humanist logic uh, was the rationalization Ted Bundy had uh, when he used it in justifying the murders of so many young women. Bundy, the serial killer, taped the conversation with one of his victims shortly before he murdered her. Well, a college student, Bundy had accepted the logic that all laws are man-made. Thus, he argued, he saw no reason why he, a man, couldn't arbitrarily change them. Killing, give, killing gave him pleasure, so why not kill? So, and nearer to the end of the chapter, uh, Richardson goes on to say, Individuals, 
even massive numbers of people can be actors in a human drama without even knowing the author of the play. Many can do and promulgate humanist ideas with no understanding that they're working contrary to the best interest of and that of others. Often contradictory behavior appears in certain liberal individuals. They are self-professed agnostics who manifest a conscience that seemingly attempts to live good lives, even though they act with no understanding of the Christian origin or the moral premises. There are also churchgoers who promote humanist deeds without recognizing the apparent contradictions between their actions and their professed faith. Few people take the time to seek out or study the genesis of their own beliefs, much less understand those who are their ideological opposition. But those who attempt to understand both sides will affect the future of America. There is a big difference between an author of the play and the performers who act out his imagination. How much more real is a drama when God writes a script, or more pathetic when man is a playwright? So, that was an abridged version of chapter 2. That was the main points that Richardson had made. Now, for chapter 2, there's a few things and a few themes that uh, stand out to me uh, for this part of the book. Um, Richardson really dives in here, uh, talking about the humanistic origin of um, left-wing morality. And what he concludes is that left-wing morality is ultimately pragmatic more than anything. So while conservatives have a morality that's dictated by God and rooted in an ultimate source of objectivity, which is uh, Christian morality, and that there is a transcendent being and a transcendent force in society that regulates behavior and encourages good behavior. Liberals simply don't have that uh, by the fact that they reject God and that they are in fact not Christian. So what happens is that if you don't have God in your life or if you don't have any overall authoritative source of morality, then what's left to fill that and give you a sense of morality is ultimately yourself. And on a larger scale, what's there to give everyone that source of morality is mankind as a whole. Now what happens when mankind as a whole is the arbiter of his own morality? Well, I mean, historically, nothing good, right? Because all you have to do to justify an act is simply to say, does it fit with what I determine to be good? Now, as a person, you know, without any objective sense of morality, I can determine a variety of things to be good, right? If I do something, if I perform an act and it gives me physical pleasure, if it gives me emotional pleasure, then I can easily determine it as good. Not because of necessarily the effects it has on society, not because of the effects it has on other people, but mainly because of the positive effects it presumably has on me. And when we apply this to, you know, the political theater, when we apply it to the political theater and we, uh, tr and when we manifest this attitude in a policy, we can say, I mean, let me pull out an example really quick. Uh, we can say that uh, for the minimum wage argument, 
right? As a as a faux humanist for this example, I can say that you know, I want a $20 minimum wage because there's people who are making a lot less and they can't afford X, Y, and Z. And if you don't support a $20 minimum wage, then you're fundamentally a bad person because a low, low wages harm people. And that's that, right? That's all I fundamentally have to do to make that argument justified with myself. Now, conservatives naturally respond with, well, you know, it's good to have higher wages, but it's also unfair to many other people like the businesses who may not be able to pay them. It's going to increase prices, so it's unfair to other workers. And there's also the argument that a lot of the people who are working minimum wage jobs don't deserve such a high wage when there's other jobs like paramedics and more skilled work who make about that same amount. And you see the the dichotomy here, well, where conservatives tend to implement Christian moral ideas about fairness and about how it will affect others, whereas the Democrat or the liberal tends to talk about how it will affect me, how will it make me feel good that I'm supposedly helping people, right? And, and, and you notice how in the liberal arguments, they do not invoke universal standards of objective morality like fairness or equality. Um, what they do is that they simply think that doing this one thing will help a certain certain group of people and I want to help people and it makes me feel good therefore I should do it at all cost. They don't even consider the conservative argument that it may not be fair Right? What about the people who have to pay the higher wages who may not be able to pay them? The business owners. What about the people who are already making high wages and don't want to be working the same wage as a McDonald's burger flipper? What about all of these structural issues that arise with fairness in our economy if the government mandates high wages for the lowest rung of workers? Well, all they have to do is deduce that down to the opponents of the minimum wage. They they just have to say to them that you obviously don't care about poor people. You don't care about helping people. I want to help people, and you're getting in the way of that. So, uh, overall, this attitude is just one example of how that's manifested in policy. And the other thing about that being manifested in policy... It's that you basically become a hardcore pragmatist and that all of your political moves are centered around the fact of, well, does it give me more political gain? Does it make me as a person feel good? Bar any of the actual consequences, does it make me feel good? Can I just say that I'm helping people and I have good intentions? If so, then that's all that's efficient for liberals to effectively operate and push their ideas in the social and political sphere uh, within this country. And needless to say, that's detrimental. And needless to say, it's right for us conservatives to call it out. But at the same time, we also have to understand that many of the things that we say to call that out just simply doesn't work. It doesn't apply to the liberal psyche. And f frankly, it's just completely irrelevant to what liberals are actually trying to do. 
so, you know, minimum wage is one example, but this sort of brute pragmatism that the lack of a central moral figure engenders, what that leads to is various forms of hypocrisy, right? Because a, a progressive has no problem saying one thing because it gives them more political advantage and it helps them feel good, thinking that they're going to do something good, quote-unquote. And then in, when that thing is applied in another scenario, they say something completely contradictory because that also makes them feel good. It also enables them to say they're doing good. It also gives them political gain. I mean, just as much as the other scenario, it checks off those three boxes for what humanists operate on. But at the same time, it's inconsistent overall with an overall ideologic ideology that they have. But conservatives you know, really have to realize that hypocrisy is the point. It's the point of what they do and say, right? Uh, Richardson even remarks that to a liberal, the word hypocrisy doesn't exist. Because to them, it's not hypocrisy, because they aren't even trying to stay consistent to begin with. And if anything, um, I mean, to us at least, they aren't trying to stay consistent, but to them what they're doing, where they can do one thing in one scenario then do something completely contradictory in another, is, you know, in its twisted way, morally consistent. Right, so... I mean, my big example for that is, you know, how liberals treat war and interventionism. Right, for a Republican president, they're always railing against, you know, the anti-war effort. Right, they don't want war they, because war kills all these poor Middle Eastern civilians halfway across the world, why do they deserve that? And, and whatnot. Which, I mean, many conservatives can latch onto, to be frank. There's many non-interventionist conservatives. And, yes, many conservatives say that they're anti-war. But they do it because they believe it's wrong to kill people, it's wrong to interfere with national severity. They do it for actual moral substantive reasons. They don't do it just to feel good. They don't do it just to push this peace rhetoric. But progressives do. So when you talk about warfare with progressives and our, you know, foreign policy in the Middle East, they look at, you know, Syria and how Trump treats it and they say, oh no, that's horrible, or better yet, Iran, right? How Trump treated Iran with sanctions and using strategic missile strikes to, um, you know, knock off top generals to debilitate its entire nuclear program and its, and its entire offensive plan in the Middle East against the United States and its NATO coalition. So, I mean, Trump does that. He drops a bomb, kills General Soleimani, and then you have the, then you have progressives go on and say, well, Trump's trying to drag us into World War III. He's such a warmonger. And yeah, he, he wants to start World War III, he's unstable. He, he wants to start nuclear war with Iran. He wants to incite enemies all across the world. So there, there, there comes the anti-war rhetoric of the progressive left, but um, say when Biden gets in, right now that Biden's in, Biden is you know, in some sense, just as interventionist as Trump, right? He Biden is already back in Syria. He already has 
uh, partial boots on the ground in some instances. He's already drone striking parts of Syria. Just like Trump did very early in his administration when he vowed to take out ISIS. And of course liberals criticize that because the anti-war rhetoric, they want to think they're doing good by advocating for not harassing civilians all across the world, halfway across the world in the Middle East. But this time, there's not a peep, right? There's not a peep from the progressive left with what Biden's doing, which is in effect the same as Trump. Now, now why isn't there that same concern? Why aren't why isn't there such a public rebuke for how Biden doing something very similar to Trump? Why isn't there such a rebuke for how Biden's supposedly going to start World War III and how he's destabilizing? our alliances, why he's, you know, neglecting our alliances, why he's just doing all these terrible things. Well, that's just because liberals only want to think they're doing good, or many, well, progressives, I should say. Progressives want to think they're doing good, and that's about it, right? They see a Republican president who is on the opposite team, so naturally they have to rail against him. And they just have to find anything that they can just identify as bad and then make up reasons as to why it's bad. But with a Democrat, they don't have to do that. Because progressives want Democrats to win, there's no reason to criticize them, so they don't. Ultimately, it's as simple as that. And that's what Richardson is really trying to get at, where, yeah, us conservatives can go on and on about all we want about how liberals have inconsistent um, policy ideas and rhetoric as what they did from now and four years ago. But it doesn't matter because it doesn't concern them. In fact, it doesn't even register with them. So that, that's ultimately our burden uh, for what we have to do with addressing this facet of how liberals operate. We, we really have to adopt the modus operandi if I'm saying that right, um, you know, the main method of how liberals operate. We have to adopt that in the sense that we just have to be a lot more steadfast in what we say, and we have to also, we also have to call out the fact that not hypocrisy, we don't have to call it hypocrisy because it effectively does nothing. What we do have to call out it is the fact that liberals and, or rather progressives, are amoral. We have to call it the fact to voters and to the people of America and to players in the cultural war. We have to call out uh, that liberals don't authentically care. Liberals and progressives don't authentically care about what they say or about the causes they take up. Because helping people and doing actual good is not the objective, right? Feeling good to them is the objective. Arbitrarily coming up with moral causes to defend just because they think it makes them look good socially and in the eyes of their neighbors, that's their real objective. Okay, it's not to create an authentic set of policy ideas. It's not to create an authentic sense of morality for them. It's not to do authentically good. So when we talk to people and when you directly confront liberals and progressives and leftists and whatnot, that's what we really have to outline and elucidate and expose, right? They want to feel good. They want to 
arbitrarily pick things that they think are good, and they want to enact policy because it makes them look good, and it doesn't actually help people. So, so that's the takeaway for chapter two. Um, in the next chapter, uh, Richardson talks a lot more about compromise, and they, it really steps in a lot more to the compromise culture that he elucidated in, in the first chapter. So, so yeah, it, it really talks about how, as elucidated in the first chapter, how compromise is killer, and how well we are victims of our own decency. Uh, Richardson goes into a lot more detail about how we counteract that and why exactly liberals push compromise so much. And it also puts compromise into perspective, right? What are conservatives doing when they compromise? Well, we'll find that out and discuss that later. And to the greater point, uh, by compromise, we effectively compromise our core values, and we don't accomplish anything we set out to do as far as gaining more influence politically and culturally. And ultimately, compromise is a useless tool. But furthermore, uh, there's a way in which we can counteract that and overall turn the tables, where we know the fact that if we compromise uh, through an initiated compromise from the left wing, in other words, if the left is making us compromise, then we lose. Well, naturally, um, we're going to be entertaining the idea that, well, what happens when we initiate the compromise, right? Maybe then that's when progressives start losing. Maybe that's when we start getting more things we want. So, as this podcast wraps up, uh, that's a thing we have to look forward to. So, uh, that's all I have to say for this podcast today. Um, there's quite a few novel and new ways to approach how we talk to liberals and how we really view their morality and how we ultimately work to counteract and expose this, you know, quote-unquote morality that the progressives carry in modern-day politics. So, with that being said, I'm Evan Underwood. Uh, with the Confrontational Politics Podcast. I will see you for Chapter 3 of the Confrontational Politics book.